you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm happy to welcome Gilbert Hill, CEO and co-founder of Tap My Data. Welcome, Gilbert. Hey, Jamie. Great to be here. So we describe Tap My Data as building tools for the new trust economy with ultimately putting citizens back in control. And these tools help people own their digital identity and companies to rebuild trust with privacy by design and blockchain keeping the score. You've got a mobile app that allows people to exercise their digital rights, um, but also for businesses to manage requests, location check-ins and data transfers. Um, And we're going to unpack all what that means a little bit later. But effectively, um, the app at least allows for secure data dialogue um, and agency, I guess, for both sides of that equation. So the reason why I've got you on the show, the kind of new or open data economy, again, we're kind of wrestling with the language that we use as an industry. Uh, You call it the new trust economy. But um, for example, Ocean, uh, I think call it the new data economy, and and we've had discussions with Secret Network who are um, referring to it as the open data economy. Whatever you call it, that space is hotting up now. We've got uh, a number of bits of infrastructure that allow for the data economy or trust economy to repurpose this kind of financial infrastructure, custody of digital assets for the custody of data. So um, data custody, data marketplaces. But we're kind of still waiting for this crossover moment for when that can become relevant to the average person's lives. So this is still very much in the domain of tooling for developers. Um, so, so really, we're looking for you know, applications of this to help everyday life and allow for blockchain privacy at scale both for end users and large organizations, of course, in a compliant way. And data compliance is obviously an increasing uh, domain of complexity. Um, So, you know, who better to talk about this? You are a privacy technologist, um, online marketeer, and serial entrepreneur. Um, You even had an exit to your name of Optinum, which was your first proof tech company. Um, You sold that to OneTrust. And um, there you pioneered multiple technological innovations in PrivTech. That's why you were acquired. And I guess if you look over your career as a whole, one way or the other, it's either been dedicated to or touching upon privacy tech, either from a kind of citizen's perspective, um, some of the work you've been doing in the the public sector uh, and kind of advising um, various working groups, uh, and then from the kind of advertising marketing perspective, both from an agency side, and then of course the brands that they work with, which includes likes of Microsoft, Volkswagen, LinkedIn, uh, you name it. And you've spent a lot of time volunteering uh, to advise, educate businesses, nonprofits around the risks and opportunities of e-privacy, as it was called when everything had an E on the front of it, and uh, GDPR, ethical marketing, web governance, and you've chaired a number of 
um, working groups, responsible marketing committee at DMA, uh, member of its privacy working group, and you've chaired uh, the Mobile and Connected Council. So good form to talk about this subject. Um, to give a quick uh, summary of your background and how you arrived at Tap My Data, originally started out working communications in financial services, so Citigroup Asset Management, where you helped them launch their first European retail uh, internet channel back in 2001. You were managing director at a company called uh, Governor Technology uh, from 2003 to 2016, which is effectively a web development agency where you're working on things like online marketing, but also data integration. That's where a lot of the brands I mentioned earlier came through. And then you founded your first PrivTech company, Optinon, as I mentioned, in 2010. Could you talk us through that a little bit as I understand there were a number of innovations um, that you you pioneered there from Cookiepedia uh, and, and several others? Yeah, sure. I mean, like a lot of people in this kind of space, I got into privacy by mistake. So as you mentioned, I was running a London digital agency, um, helping people, predominantly Microsoft, actually, we kind of followed the money around at Microsoft from the early days of um, MSN messenger bots. So there's nothing new under the sun, ending up, you know, going through MSN when it was a real destination, and ending up with the likes of, with, of Skype and Xbox Connect. Um, so we were always seen as, as you say, sort of data integrators, and we um, were using lots of um, elements of the uh, the ad tech ecosystem. I think really uh, because we were told to, and because it made sense. So, for example, cookies. You mentioned cookies. You know, for us, for me and my team, cookies were simply tools, They're like small snippets of code that you know, when we were asked what they did. We say, oh, we may make the web work in terms of you know returning to your shop it basket and all of that kind of stuff. With the advent of the EU cookie laws, you know, I am ashamed to say it showed me how ignorant I was about this intersection between regulation and the data that we were using, and also the risk associated with that. And it started me and a lot of other people um, in terms of uh, going down a, a route of understanding what our exposure to this new risk was, because there was a complete dearth of information. Um, and it felt like the sort of the old days of web one, that there were sort of cobbled together pages with what you must do about cookies. And it all involved manual um, manual labor in terms of find using tools to find what cookies are being dropped, categorizing them, generally using your own or whatever um, uh, uh, categories were available, and then trying to distill really, you know, arcane, chewy legal regulations into something that you could turn into a, a workable solution. And at the same time, you know, the agency model was reaching its logical conclusion in terms of, you remember how it was, you know, around, around Old Street and Shoreditch, there were lots and lots of agencies, you start selling an agency, you get some big clients like you mentioned, but of course, you're holding on to a rising balloon, your costs are getting higher and higher. So in the, in the days of SaaS, we wanted to find something which had its own IP. Um, so we took what the problem was and turned that into an opportunity in terms of building our own sort of scraper to discover what cookies were being dropped and categorize them. You mentioned something called Cookiepedia. We built that because, again, these were the days where big data was just becoming a thing. And we wanted to plug into that things like Hadoop. So we um, created our own um, every site that we scraped, we were gathering information and knowledge base about these cookies. And even though that was quite small big data, it was unique. 
And as you mentioned, when that product matured into something that we could then roll out to web estates with hundreds of websites or to small companies who had no clue how to start about this, um, that data became the most valuable asset. And that became the one that was most useful to the company that acquired us. Since then, we've obviously seen um, compliance tech, and it's interesting you're talking about, but I think it's a good thing when we argue about the names of things, because I think the degree to which you're driving the terminology and the conversation around new concepts like this is really vital when you're, when you're forming consensus. And, you know, around the, around, uh, you know, priv tech, legal tech, compliance tech, that's now mushroomed. We've now seen with OneTrust the first sort of priv tech unicorn. But I think we're still really in the starting blocks with a lot of the software and the tools that exist for that, um, you know, in that space, because they're all about keeping this notion of data as a lot good. So, companies have realized that the, the data that they've amassed with data lakes um, is in danger of becoming toxic via regulatory risk, via breaches that we hear about every day. And so actually this, this software that's developed has helped them you know, build more walls around that, keep that more secure. And that's a really good thing because without security, there's inherently no privacy. But what's missing, who hasn't been dealt in yet, um, and that's where the Web3 element is so exciting to me. And what was exciting to me about like OneTrust was the individual that, you know, people still, you know, people still don't really understand what cookies do. And you know what? They never will. And why should they? Um, because it's all happening under the hood. And Web3 is all about things happening under the hood. And Tap My Data was 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 built to focus on one very specific, simple question. Because if we didn't keep it simple, we blow people's minds. Um, and there've been a lot of kind of projects that haven't really got off the starting blocks because they've tried to do too much at, at one time, you know, create the privacy cloud of me or tackle these really big problems when actually people are just curious or surprised by how their data is used or they, it feels kind of wrong. Um, and we wanted to focus on that. Hence, we focused on having, um, you know, another thing that's lacking, having consumer-grade tech. So everyone is doing everything in the palm of their hands. Obviously, you know, whether you think of a mobile phone as like a, uh, a pickaxe or a six-shooter in the Wild West, it's how you get things done now. And we wanted to put tools that help people start to, as you say, show, exercise their rights and show some agency, and then start to repatriate their data bit by bit and understand it more. And that was, and that, that for us, you know, was the first step in this ultimate journey that is, is actually really accelerating now, both the risks and also the opportunity for people to move away from being locked out of a castle to owning their data and being incentivized to share it and, and, and monetize it. Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned earlier, um, cookies was really the thing that drove from a marketing perspective, you know, drove that journey. And, and really, we had Brendan Icon, the podcast, um, a few months ago, I can't remember when now. Yeah, and he was talking around, you know, the role of JavaScript and, and the cookie and, and how that was created almost in a rush. And all of a sudden, it became universal. And, and of course, he's now trying to fix part, part of that problem over at Brave. Um, so it's interesting, you can kind of track the cookie alongside, you know, what you've done in PrivTech. And then I also think it's worth just clarifying, you mentioned OneTrust. OneTrust, 
um, as the first PrivTech unicorn. That was actually the company that bought Optinon and you went on there to lead business development um, for a year, presumably on your on your earnout. Um, you then uh, spent some time at Unilever working on digital governance of cookies. Obviously, Unilever, huge company, huge portfolio of brands. Uh, and there you were helping them on the strategic aspects of governance and execution of web cookies, GDPR, Again, e-privacy, still still got an E on the end at, at, at that point. Um, you then took on a, a role as senior tutor at the Institute of Direct and Digital Marketing. I mentioned that earlier, you know, helping people understand consequences, implications of GDPR, data ethics. Um, and as you began to tell the story then, 2018, you founded Tap My Data. So, you know, I've heard you, uh, again, you, you referenced this previously, this idea that there's been this data explosion and it's accelerating. Uh, I've heard you say, especially in the last two years, there's kind of it's almost exponential growth of data, the data that we're collecting, and ultimately that we're now in a lose-lose situation. So, you know, this isn't necessarily just about companies being bad actors, right? It's that, yes, people have no control, but companies have this almost insurmountable job of um toxic data lakes of personal data. Most probably don't even know the amount of data that they've got, rising fines with GDPR, um, and this idea of data rights being weaponized. So can you talk us about like where we're at now in that cycle of 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 um the data economy or I guess what you're framing as what you hope to become the new trust economy? I mean let's start with the with the challenge. And it's no you know it's no exaggeration to say that the you know the the data trade, or specifically the trade in in third party data, is facing an extinction level event. And basically, what you've got is a pincer movement. You've got both a activity by the regulator um, in the UK a couple of weeks ago. You had the ICO, which previously, you know, when we think about GDPR, the big threat and how that you know PrivTech was sold was that there are going to be big fines coming. Actually, in practice, the fines have been able to be mitigated by companies who could just demonstrate that, you know, we're fixing the problem or maybe that they had very good lawyers. And so they'd be able to get those fines down. What's much more scary and is now coming into effect is the kind of a nuclear option with regulators, which is to stop companies from being allowed to process data. Um, now, processing data, if we use like the big oil analogy, is anything that gives it its value. That's like, you know, capturing it, blending it storing it, transferring it, selling it, and also disposing of it. And what the ICO, the UK regulator, has said with Experian is that they've been stretching consent. And again, that's what we're focused on. We tap my data as one element is consent to breaking point. It's being abused. But when you go on to um, a website and you click OK on the cookies, and we all do, I do that too, because it's designed to be like that, that um, you then are giving that consent is then being used and abused by multiple parties and you have no visibility of that. The regulator in the UK, and this is just a, a start of a pattern, has said that cannot continue. Um, got, you know, Experian's got nine months to sort its, sort its act out. And so for people to understand, Experian is um, one of the large data nodes. So it's a, the largest credit scoring agency in the UK. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about, you know, if we're talking about trust, it's a big, it's a big trust hub. Uh, and it does, it does perform all sorts of useful, um, you know, the argument that um, we give organizations, we trust organizations with our data so that we can get tailored offers, 
and access to products is absolutely valid. And we're not trying to sort of destroy that. Um, the, and so, so Experian and other credit control, credit agencies form a vital, as you say, a vital node in that. The problem is that there is not enough visibility um, of what's happening with that data. And also the, the fact is that these activities that are performing, you don't need the company to own this. You only need them to access it for the task that's, uh, that's, that's appropriate. And people in the kind of privacy space have been talking about this for ages in quite an academic way, you know, privacy by design you mentioned. Actually, I like to boil it down to something really simple. It's like taking a need to know approach to approach to data. So now what's happening is that that whole data trade, because of those excesses, um, it's being, you know, time is being called on this, partly because companies are also marking their own homework. I think that's also where, you know, so businesses are no longer being given the benefit of the doubt um, with things like, um, you know, legitimate interest, because too often they've been saying, well, it's legitimate, I'm legit, it's in my interest, so I'll do it. And you're seeing, as I said, that pincer movement of regulators really getting serious, because this is also an existential threat to regulators. Unless they do something about this, they might as well not be there. And you've seen big companies, you know, the huge platforms already act like their own regulators. You've also got this other threat, which is this ongoing, you know, if you think of GDPR as a kind of Pandora's box, that started up all these other regulations in places like Brazil, Japan, India, and, you know, California leading the way now, um, which is, which is, and you've got the EU um, uh, Data Governance Act, which is hitting this week, all of which mandate that every company that has data needs to provide every individual with their own API, essentially, so they can get their data, transfer it seamlessly. And this was always one of the ambitions of the GDPR. It wasn't to stop business as usual, but actually to create a level playing field. We're now, I'm surprised, two years down the line, and probably because, as you say, there's been this data explosion, how quickly we're moving now. We, it does seem that we're really at a tipping point. And you know, the data trade is in crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you consider that extinction level event, really data now has shifted from being perceived as an asset to a liability. And as you said, ownership, um, you don't want ownership of a liability, right? So it's kind of how, how can they get that off their books effectively? Um, and I'd imagine that liability then starts to factor into share price and stuff like that. So as that becomes more tangible to the shareholder supremacy, sadly, still the primary driver for decisioning within large organizations, um, I, I think uh, there's great promise um, that, that that can make this transition happen in an accelerated form. So let, let's go into Tap My Data, how Tap My Data solves this. You say you build tools for people to take back control of their data and responsible businesses to rebuild trust. Can, can you talk us through how you do that? You know, What are the constituent parts and how you're seeing it being used? Sure. I mean, what, what we built in the first instance was, as you say, a platform for people to exercise their, their rights. And it was an experiment because, again, there was a lot of BS talked that people in general and also young people in particular don't care about their data and like don't care about, you know, privacy is dead, all this kind of stuff of a horse is bolted. From, you know, a relatively small sample of 5,000 users 
and 20,000 requests over the past 18 months, we've completely blown that myth apart. But actually, when people are given tools and access to their data, they not only um, uh, appreciate um, the, the, uh, the people who are giving them those tools, so we get great feedback from, from individual users, but they also value the companies who respond to that and engage in that kind of data dialogue. And I think what we're seeing, you know, we wanted to ferment was a situation where companies are moving away from compliance obligations, which are being gamed, to more of a relationship of trust with, um, with individuals and rebuilding that trust. And it's interesting, you know, I mentioned um, trust in the name of companies. I, you know, I want to do a check and see how many companies, it's, it's the new, you know, we talked about E as a pre prefix before, trust as a prefix or suffix is, is, is a really strong look at the moment. So we wanted to plug into that. And, you know, as a first step, because the other big challenge was when, you have asked for your work to structure those questions rather than to sort of have a kind of adversarial approach where you say, I want all my data, because we know that companies struggle to deliver that. And we also know that individuals don't know what they want and don't know what to do with it. So a vital element that we built as well in the early stages was a wallet that you could keep that data in securely and then you could start to share it. And we found very quickly that people wanted to um, you know, share data with organizations around uh, with with whom they felt an affinity, whether it's a charity or of a civil rights group. And again, you mentioned, you know, um, you know some of the um, weaponization of data. We've just seen in the, the US election how data and disinformation has been a key weapon by both sides in terms of people getting uh, text messages uh, with misinformation about where you know using these elements of ad tech um, to uh, about about whether they're eligible to vote, what documents they need to bring, when the when the voting window is, and 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 and, and other things like that. And so we we've we've seen this politicisation of data and giving people that ownership and that access was the, the was the the main thrust of the first phase. The, what we quickly found as well is that um, you know people started to ask questions about what they could do with that data and what the whether there was a monetization element to that, and that's been driven very much in the states. And that's what, and I think the the thing that will turbocharge this movement to you know whether you want to call it data emancipation or whatever, or you know the open data economy is that combination of doing the right thing and getting something for your for for your data or even just to have you know to have visibility of a, of, of you know a kind of price discovery around your data because this business is worth 325 billion dollars a year and people are waking up to the fact that there is a deal going on and they're not getting juiced in what's helped us as we've been working from one angle, which has been the right side, we've seen the rapid maturation of um, uh, decentralized data marketplaces. Um, and I think the time is right for us to plug into that and to focus again, what elements of my data do I sell? Well, let's focus on the one that, you know, earlier on in our conversation, that's being abused most on consent. Because I can, if I've got visibility of my data and I of where where it's being shared, 
I can then take a call. I can say to you, you know, um, you don't get to own my data. You get to access it for a price for a specified period of time. And actually, that benefits both parties. So the next step, and again, what we're fundraising for at the moment, is to put into place both of those both of those elements, still with a blockchain keeping keeping score, but also providing providing the spine for those for those commercial tra transactions via the ERC twenty token, and the and the NFT. So now, for the first time, you know um, you can mint crystallized elements of your digital identity which you've pulled back and which which you know companies are mandated to give to you by the new regulations that are coming online and then you can do something with that you can gift that or get commercial benefit from it um, and you know in the context of a of your you know the current the current bull market for crypto i mean uh, you know the last time we had a bull market i had um, was getting some building work done here in the loft and my builders were saying to me gil you know are you are you doing miss crypto stuff at the time i put my hand up i wasn't you know and i and i felt that i was missing out on something they were all trading crypto uh, they were trading altcoins now with this bull market i think being characterized by 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 Bitcoin and others sort of growing up and ascending to be you know true treasury instruments um, and um, being normal you know uh, uh, normal um, financial services instruments you know data is can be the new thing that ordinary people can um, can latch onto and also an on ramp to the sort of the the, the world of of Web three which as we mentioned also happens largely under the hood if we're going to succeed in this and if tap my data is going to succeed in its mission to socialize all this and be an on-ramped crypto we have to make it keep that simplicity so you're always presented with a a series of choices from someone you trust it's really interesting I was reading the um Bill Gates's um road ahead is now 25 years old and he was talking about um uh, you know, so which of these predictions had come to pass? Obviously, he said social is going to be big, and it has and then some. But he was also talking about the ones that didn't come to pass. And though we've got things like Siri and Alexa, um, who you know they'll do things like they'll they'll pick a tune for us or turn on our lights, we haven't seen that evolution of the digital assistant to the point that Bill was talking about, where they'd interpret our sort of closest insights and get a closer and closer relationship to us. That's again because of this 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 blocker with trust, and the more you know what we found with Tap My Data is that the more you trust people with their own data, the more they will give back to you. So I see Tap My Data very much as as a you know a pirate ship into these new new seas um, where we have a trusted group of users who allow us to take them into new areas and that's that chimes quite nicely with what we're seeing the kind of the uk eu model around data unions because we know that collectively we have a much whether it's you know the representatives of the open data economy or individuals we've got a much bigger bargaining power if we work together yeah, so, so let's talk about some of the usage. You mentioned earlier this idea of subject access request or SAR um, or DSAR. Could you just talk us through um, that process and the level of usage that you've had? Because you've got you know, lots of users doing this stuff now. And, uh, and then also, I guess, the, the, the scale of interaction that's happening with organizations and businesses. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, the, if you think about the DSAR, the subject access request, it's sort of knocking on the door of the uh, the whole um, you know data data ed edifice, and it's the it, it's the it's a question that gets asked most by people when they're pissed off with a company or they've received some kind of marketing that has either upset them or has been unexpected. You know, how did you get my data? And we saw that companies were able to say we support this right without actually having you know much while putting up quite a lot of friction um, either inadvertently or maybe by design to people exercising that right so what we did by creating the tools to do this um, in a frictionless way was open that up from consumer point of view so now i mean similarly following the cookiepedia model we've now got the largest source of data around these requests anywhere in the world and we're also you know the past couple of days we've started surfacing that um, on on the ocean data marketplace and there's been a lot of interest around that because these are interesting insights whether it's into whether they're going to be used by by um, other companies when they're looking at it as part of a due diligence for an acquisition the volume of of you know subject access requests and how many of them are fulfilled successfully is a really good indicator of the operational um, efficiency or robusticity of a company. And we've seen, you know, the cost of doing that, you know, thing like the, the Marriott fine in the UK, that was based on Marriott acquiring a smaller chain that were doing cool things with data and they hadn't actually um, assessed the costs as part of their Part of their due diligence. So with companies, you know, we've had to do a lot of education to get over companies' um, concerns. That there's also, you know, when we talk about weaponization, there's also been a, a trend of, of what I call like nuisance tech to bombard companies to stress test them um, with with requests, which isn't have been isn't where we're positioned. But we're seeing companies come round now quite quickly to the situation that this isn't going away and that actually people are asking about their data with these requests want to engage in the dialogue. And I think, I mean, the success of this will be based on how we help those companies migrate these requests, which are really important, away from legal and compliance to the parts of a business which own the relationship with the customer. So increasingly, data, as, 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 as people come up the curve with what their data is worth and what their rights are, that should be part of the conversation that you have with someone in the contact center or in the store or with your financial advisor. So again, what we are, the message that we are stressing is that companies need to rehabilitate this into the, the core of a business as they've done with data acquisition and monetization themselves. So, I mean, let's zoom out and look at the, the way that the world could become. I guess perhaps your argument is it's inevitable, like the world has to change. Everything's this veritable storm now. Um, uh, and we get the new trust economy. You know, what, what does that look like? Well, I mean, you know, trust is what everyone's chasing. And I was I, I was talking to someone at WPP yesterday who said they commissioned some internal research saying that for every dollar spent on increasing trust amongst consumers, there's like a, a like a five x return. So this is really we businesses get this and they need to get some traction. I think you know having the opportunity to 
create genuine frictionless and decentralized trade around data. So selling your data via smart contract breaks a problem that you have. But most companies are amassing lots of data and it's so risky now, they can't do anything with it and they can't share it, which means that insights aren't shared. And that's whether that, you know, if you think about context of COVID, that also works in the public sector space. But if people don't trust the information that's been gathered on the COVID app and where it's going to be shared, then those insights are lost. So having a situation where the individual in the new trust economy or the new the open data economy can specify, okay, uh, these are the intermediaries that I want, you know, no, you know, no third party should have access to my data. Privacy, you know, I don't want my data itself revealed, just the insights to the customer. And also things like, you know, the monetization, you know, I want to, I want to avoid any admin overhead or, 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 or avoidable fees. And then finally, to whom that data set should be made available. Wrapping all that up via a smart contract, and we've, as I mentioned before, we've already got the web-free structure you know, and tools around the decentralized data marketplace. The data citizen can define our requirements and restrictions, um, and we can stop the, you know, we can restart the engine of, of data commerce in a new mode. Um, and I know, you know, so I'm very optimistic about this, and, you know, and it's something that's being enshrined at a government level as well. So the government isn't just empowering regulators to break things and to, and to, and to make life difficult for the data trade. They're saying, if you can evolve this via data unions, via, um, you know, open marketplaces for consumer data where the consumers play a role, then, then, they will do their part, which is to um, uh, invest in things like uh, citizen training. So educating citizens about the trust economy is a vital piece of this. So I'm actually very optimistic. I see actually out of these, this, this, this extinction level event, we're going to come through okay, but it's based around new decentralized elements of citizen data. To be honest, it's been a competitive disadvantage to do the right thing by data. Now it's very much a competitive advantage. So you can park the, I have to do all this because GDPR, you can actually get back to the business of using the data that you need without prying into Jamie's mind. Yeah, you definitely don't want to go there. Um, well, look, uh, Gilbert, thanks for coming on. I mean, it's been a pleasure working with you in, in the Accelerator uh, at Outlier Ventures. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm watching with great interest to see what happens both on Ocean with the IDEO, the initial data offering, as well as your wider sale. Um, I think this is a mission that everybody can get behind. How do people download the app and, and join the trust economy? Um, the app's available on uh, Apple and Android, um, and it's also the best way to get involved in our token event because we're using it for the KYC. So the best way to get involved is to download the app, get, get using it, and tell us what you think. Great. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Gilbert. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.